Dr. Clemens Martinauer is the long-standing Director General of the Austrian Federal Ministry of Health and Women's Affairs. He is a well-known advocate for the implementation of better tools to evaluate healthcare efficiency and outcomes, and has been the co-chair of the European eHealth Network in partnership with the European Commission's DG Santé to establish cross-border eHealth applications. In 2017, he was elected President of the European Health Forum, Gastein, which under his direction is focused on improving the delivery of healthcare in the EU member states. He has recently been nominated by the Austrian government as a candidate for the WHO European Director. Dr. Auer, it's a pleasure to see you, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're here at your event at the Welcome Trust. How did this event come into place? How did you guys organize this? Oh, you know, we're always interested in finding new partners and uh, who, if not the Welcome Trust, is a potential and a good partner for the European Health from Gastein. And, uh, and it's always and uh, you know it's also was a very very deliberate decision to do something in the United Kingdom yeah for obvious reasons yes for <laughs> obvious reasons we don't have to uh, elaborate now <laughs> so you've been the director general of the Austrian health ministry since 2005 how has that role changed over the last 15 years I don't know if the role has changed, but, you know, the, the basis we are working on has changed dramatically. You know, when I, when I reflect my time in the ministry, you know, I'm a systems guy. You know, first of all, you know, financing, organization, you know, capacity building, etc., etc., etc. I'm not that much a public health person. But, you know, when I, when I remember, you know, what, what financial analysis we had, you know, what the Austrian healthcare system is costing us, so to say, uh, we had very, very little evidence and very good uh, valid information. If I look at it now, we do have twice a year a monitoring a monitoring report about the f- the financial development of the costs, etc., etc. And we 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 are target we have a target based uh, steering process now with all our fragmented partners, our provinces, the social health insurances, and and us, the federal government. So you know it it, it improved so much. You know the the quality and the evidence and what we are doing. Uh, so this is, I think, there was a quantum leap in, 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 once again, in the quality of our work. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here because you've been the co-chair of the European eHealth Network. Yes. Has this played into the work you've done in Austria then to get these data out you of know, the You know, why did I engage, why, why did I decide to be uh, active on the European level? Because, you know, we were very active on, on eHealth issues in Austria very early on. And I don't want, I did, never wanted to produce a stranded investment, you know, sure. when it comes to, to standardization and, and all these kind of things, you know, I wanted to be in the front of lines and wanted to be able to influence the part. So that was my main motivation to, to collaborate with on the European level and be also in, in, in the driver's seat. Uh, but of course, this is also a European motivation because, you know, Austria alone is too small. Yeah. <laughs> Britain is too small to solve all these kind of problems. The United States are too small to solve the problems of uh, technological interoperability and standards and formats, etc., etc. So this is the reason why we started it, and and it was it is a highly successful process. Very slow, of course, because it's Europe, it's democratic, it's uh, expert driven, but it's worthwhile doing. So. You have the systems in place. What do you still see are the challenges that you're trying to overcome to make this more applicable and also solve some of the problems you've On the got? technological level, and you know, uh, and this conference here is also a little bit about artificial intelligence, etc., etc., what we overlook in the healthcare sector 
worldwide. This is not a European thing. It's I think it's a worldwide thing. We forget to ask who is producing health data. Sure. And you know the producers of health data are ordinary, and I don't mean it in a negative way, but it is, these are regular uh, healthcare providers, a general practitioner, a lab, uh, an imaging institution, a teaching university, a teaching university. Yeah. All these. All these institutions or individuals are producing health data, and 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 what I see is that the interoperability to exchange this data is so limited, because the digital infrastructure these guys use, a doctor, a lab, is not interoperable enough. So you, we never can ex- get generate the dream we have, you know, this magnitude <laughs> of, of, of data for, to really to make the most out of artificial intelligence, as long as these, all these people, institutions, individuals, you know, single doctor office is capable of sharing the data, the information they have. Now, how much of that is a technical problem, and then how much of that is a political problem in that a lot of the doctors gain political power by having this data that they get to keep themselves? Yeah, there's a cultural issue. You know, and this is in the, in the, in the medical field, there's still this cultural issue that, that doctors don't want to share data. I think this has to be overcome, and I think this is diminishing anyway because clinicians are used to share data in a hospital setting. Right. And maybe a general practitioner in the outside world, you know, somewhere in my mountain valleys in Austria or <laughs> on, the, on the Frisian Islands in the, uh, in the North Sea, they might not be used to share data. But this is a cultural question. But there is also an infrastructure question uh, because, uh, you know, they, they oh, and I don't blame them, you know, I don't blame them. They were willing to install technical infrastructure in their offices. Mm-hmm. But they didn't think about that we, the system, you know, people like me, that we want them to share what they produce. Right. So they have an infrastructure which is not made. It's for their own use. It's for their use. own yeah. use to optimize their own processes, their billing processes, their appointment processes, etc., 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 or their documentation because they're all obliged to have doc- documentation. So they and obviously do you're requesting reports and so all this. Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. So th- this is, you know, this was the main purpose why a hospital information system 20 years ago was created. Right. But it was not created to share data. So how are you getting around this, what we call spaghetti, then? How do you yeah, get see, this is my new topic you know, <laughs> I have everywhere, you know, because I'm talking and preaching it, you know, on the global sector, on the global level and the European level. I think what we, it's not a technical question, because I think all the features to create an eco, interoperable ecosystem are there. They are there. We, we don't, you know, we don't even have to make decisions about it. We ha- only have to make the decision what st- uh, standards we are using, right. uh, and and have to agree on them. And then th- everybody would be happy if on a, on somehow on a soft regulatory base, you know, some some competent authority in the world on the globe, I don't know, would make a decision. Uh, make make a decision. Then industry would have a clear picture. The procurers would have a clear picture. The vendors would have a clear picture. Each and each and every individual who makes an investment decision has a clear picture of what's interoperable and what's not. Do you think using an ICD code base, the WHO ICD codes, would be a, a good start? No, ICD codes are uh, some, uh, uh, providing semantic interoperability, but I also talk 
talking about uh, sheer uh, technical standards, you mm-hmm. know, uh, all these uh, IAG, HL7, and call them, you know, name them. They're all there, you know, they are developed. And th- many of these standards have proven that they create e- interoperability or that they, they are capable of creating an e- interoperable ecosystem. And I think this is what we have to agree now. See, I'm, I'm sponsoring right now and working hard on it in, within the European Union to make an investment guideline. You know, there's so much public money spent on digital infrastructure and health. And, you know, what my, my dream is that we in the public sector, we agree on, okay, we are, we are willing to put money into the sector, you know, into also a new generation of technical infra, uh, digital infrastructure. But this new infrastructure has to be an interoperable bond. So we have to answer the first question is, what is creating interoperability? And we are only putting money into software, hardware, infrastructure, which is interoperable. Now, the problem, though, is what seems like from my perspective working a lot with the European projects you see a certain amount not insubstantial or inconsequential amounts of money 20, 30 million euros yeah. that goes into run a very good pilot yeah. but then it never gets implemented at scale because that now you're not talking millions you're talking we're talk, we're billions we're talking about billions billions yes what do we need to do to get over that hump so we're looking okay this works here's here's yeah, 5 um, billion 10 billion euros yes. let's do this for size no but you know the, the the new financial framework for the for the European Commission will have quite a bit of money and there we're talking about billions yeah. you know which which the commission is willing together with the member states to invest into a new infrastructure technical uh, digital infrastructure and some of this money has to go to healthcare, and and people like me and the, the the top level of the commission, we have the same understanding. This money is only wisely spent if it's really creating an ecosystem which is interoperable. So so this is uh, so, so we do we have a little bit of dialectical trap. You know, the commission is willing to do so, and now the member states are also agreeing. You know voluntarily agreeing that okay this is the set the set of uh, of standards and formats and and technical prerequisites which has to be in place to have this interoperable inter ecosystem and this is a national question it's a regional question a national question but of course this is a european question as long as the austrian digital health infrastructure is is interoperable then it's also interoperable with europe right and vice versa but there's political will that needs to be there because when yes. you're talking billions of dollars, and if that fails, I mean, heads will roll. And most politicians, not yourself, obviously, but other politicians are not willing to make those big gambles politically. What do we need to do to ensure that there's not going to be no, political they, blowback? The, the, the political level needs the, the assurance that the standards we are agreeing on are really helping to create interoperability. And th- this is very important. You know, we, we have to pick standards technical formats, etc., etc., which have proven right. that they can do it. And and they are there. We don't, on, on our side, on the public side, on the political side, on the civil servant side, we don't have to invent a single thing there. They're all there. They're all there. We only have to say, okay, this is the set. This wins, yes, this wins, exactly. this wins. So we're obviously here at this event. We're talking about innovation. We've had quite a robust discussion about Facebook and <laughs> algorithms, et cetera, and artificial intelligence. The GDPR was put in place, I think, for very good reasons. However, there are research questions and concerns that the GDPR is restricting access to data. Do you think the GDPR is fit for purpose right now, or would you like to see some changes made, but yet 
yet by still maintaining public trust? What do we think we you need to do? I think it's a little bit in a gray area right now. I think we are in a phase right now where the GDPR is now inter- interpreted by lawyers and not the best branch of lawyers. They are the <laughs> liability bro- uh, lawyers and the fearful lawyers. And I think we have to stop them ruining what the good is coming out of this uh, data protection regulation. So I'm a policy person, you know, and, uh, and it, I, I'm confronted, I don't want to say on a daily basis, but probably on a weekly basis, where I can't understand the world anymore, where a lawyer somewhere tells uh, the people that they can't do it anymore because of data protection and and I don't read it in the Dutch in the, in the in the context and in the text of the regulation you know so we are going through a phase I think an imp- implementation phase since I'm a veteran of, of e-health uh, implementation you know you have to have a sound regulation to build trust and people have to be very very assured what happens with it, with it, with health data and it should be first of all an exclusive thing for the continuity of care between a patient and the healthcare provider or the many healthcare providers in the cycle of a treatment so this is what it should be first of all of course but then we need it for a scientific reasons and for research reasons but not in a personalized way necessarily and if it is used in a personalized way then we have to be sure that it is safe and sound the governments the national legislators they have to do their homework right they do have to do their homework and it's not rocket science it's not rocket science we have to do it now I'm praising my own work. I think Austria has done a fairly good job. We have a very sound uh, health telematics law, which regulates a lot of these issues. You know, I'm selling it. I'm in my neighbor countries, you know, where we do workshops with the governments there and the people working on regulations and try to un- help them to understand what is at stake. But it's not rocket science. We have to do our homework. But it's complex. Many politicians don't want to do it because it's too complex, but it's doable. Is, do you think it's just a lot of it's the political hot-button issue, the fact that it's such a hot-button issue from a personal standpoint that they just rather just say, okay, oh, we're not going to do this? See, in, in the health, then we also, you know, don't underestimate the power of organized doctors. <laughs> and organized doctors, I love them, and we owe them a, a high respect. You know, I don't say anything against them. But this is also a powerful political lobby. Politically organized doctors are not friends of digital health. They see it as a competitor? Yes, yes competitors, and they are afraid of a very simple thing. Digital data, which is available to a peer, shows yeah. what the other peer did or didn't to a patient. And this peer review is not a love thing among medical doctors. So many, many. I don't want to, you know, don't, sure. don't, don't generalize it, but many. And, and I think this is a cultural question. It's an educational question. I think we have to really speak with medical universities, you know, how they integrate a digitalization in the curriculums. Do you think that's going to change as uh, the age demographics shift? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I have another example, you know, but it has nothing to do with digitalization. But young doctors, they love digital gadgets, you know. They don't have a problem with that. I also know, uh, you know, when we, we had a big program, one of my last big uh, political projects in Austria was uh, an overhaul of the primary healthcare sector. The old doctors didn't want to change. The young doctors wanted to have this, this team-building processes and facilities where they can team up and work together because they're used to 
it. Right. We have generational issues in the health sector a lot. I'm going to change the subject here a little bit. You're involved in something called the Benelexa Consortium. Yes. <laughs> you and I have had many robust discussions over the years about drug pricing, etc. And Benelexa is to foster group negotiations for drug pricing in Europe. Can you tell us what it is and why you decided to join? It is very simple. You know, I think the pharmaceutical industry, and, and don't don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing the pharmaceutical industry, but the pharmaceutical industry at large is operating globally sure. or European or whatever. And a, a boardroom decision in a, pharma, in a larger pharmaceutical company is done not for a single market. It's done for the larger market. And they make very, very clever decisions for themselves. So, But the vis-a-vis and we are the vis-a-vis the public healthcare systems, we are totally fragmented. We think maybe locally, regionally, if, if you're lucky, we think nationally. If it comes to, to purchasing or procuring medical devices or drugs or whatever, and this sheer need we have to overcome, we have to think also in larger entities. That's why I'm so grateful that the former Dutch uh, Minister of Health, uh, Madame Schippers, uh, started, you know, looking around and saying, you know, who were a like-minded countries, like-minded in terms that they understand the problem, that they have a similar GDP, similar price, similar sure. pricing. Uh, similar size, uh, similar, similar volumes. Similar size, similar sure. So this is why we started and the, uh, working together with the Benelux and Austria and now are joined by Ireland. Because, you know, we are high-priced countries, we are high-income countries, we are high-priced countries, so we have a, a definite a different situation than, than I don't know, want to say, Cyprus or Greece or Bulgaria or whatever, you know, even Poland or the Czech Republic or Slovakia, you know, mm-hmm. are my immediate neighbors. And we are working together. And I always, even when I talk to my friends in pharmaceutical industry, I say, you know, don't be afraid of it. You know, we are in a learning curve Because we analyze our problems, we share our problems, we find out that we have similar problems, and then we also want to overcome this asymmetry of transparency we have in the pharmaceutical sector. You know, we can talk about long about that, (laughs) but there is an asymmetry. And, you know, we at least we start to exchanging our information we have. Will that lead to really joint negotiations where the Beneluxa countries plus Ireland will then uh, use the market force of roughly 50 million people. Maybe, yes, that would be good, but we are not there. How far away are you, do you think? We are just running into legal problems because we right. find out it's the it violates pro- exactly <laughs> a joint procurements uh, a cross border joint procurements are not, not that easy to handle uh, if it comes to the if it comes to in the hands of the lawyers again right. you know well, yeah, same ones probably <laughs> <laughs> so but you know but we are government so we have the luxury and the privilege to change regulation but that's going to require regular that's going to require a legal change that, that's legal change yeah. it's a le- regulatory process that's a political process. It's a parliamentary right. process as long as we're living in the rule of law or according to the rule of law. It's not a, a, a quick win, but what I'm very proud of is that there is already a team of many people now in our member states. You know, If they have a problem, they know a telephone number, sure. whom to call. And this is wonderful, I think. And How much of your pressure 
that you're seeing from the pricing and etc is coming from the demographics of Europe. I mean, Europe is aging. Yeah. You know, 20% of the population by 2055, 2060 is going to be over 80 years old. The cancer risk of someone 80 is yeah. you know, one third higher than it is for someone who's 60. I mean, how much of this is just caused by the you know, sort of aging demographics of Europe? I, I think I have my numbers down pretty much when it comes to pharmaceuticals. I think we shouldn't be afraid and public people shouldn't make uh, steer anxiety where there shouldn't be anxiety. You know, in the last, let's say, f- almost 10 years, the increase in retail pharmaceuticals, the, in- the increase was very flat. Sure. So th- that means that these are all the drugs you can buy uh, through a pharmacy. So I don't see that there may we have a major problem there. The problems we had in that sector was we were able to 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 solve by pushing a substitution d- generics, and now we biosimilars. have biosimilars. Yeah. So, and you know, I have one sentence always on my lip. You know, I said we have to do our homework and create a headroom for innovation. You know, push generics, push biosimilars, then you can also pay for high-priced medicines. I think we manage that in general in the outpatient sector where. Very well. Where I do see now a real threat, and that's it's more complex, it's not as obvious because these products are not sold uh, through the pharmacies, is in the clinical sector. Sure. And there we are running into the problem that some medications are. And I already said that, and I repeat myself, obscenely expensive. You know, they don't match the value of the medicine anymore. The other politicians, and we have in Europe mostly publicly financed hospitals, are really, really getting nervous. And I have to tell you, and I repeat that also, uh, there is not a single political conference in Europe anymore in the presence of ministers of health where this is not one of the hot issues and topics. Now, you and I have had many discussions about Sivaldi, the hepatitis C drug, yes. which is one of the bellwethers of, yes, of what you would a, call obscene. Yes, that was, that was a, this discussion changed the scene. We've done a lot of work, and we helped one of your colleagues from another country in his negotiation with Gilead, who yeah. now I have to say is a client, in full disclosure, yeah. but they weren't at the time. We looked at this from the UK perspective, and we saw that, you know, Sivaldi, whilst was 84,000 list dollars, which is close to 72,000 euros which is now much lower than that, was saving 135,000 pounds of long-term treatment per patient over the lifetime of the patient when you included the liver transplant risk, which was one in five. How do you balance that political long-term tail? Yeah, that's a good narrative. You're, you're, you're it's economics. <laughs> it's, it's, it's economics, a good narrative, Martin. and it's a, yes, it's economic. It's factual. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but you also can have another narrative because why should innovation be expensive? Sure. If if you have the means if in that particular uh, a therapy, which which can reduce the costs of treatment, then be, we should be happy. This is where we have to have a discussion. You know, what, what is the value of an innovative uh, therapy and, and how do we assess the value? You know? Well, let and, me ask you a quick yeah. question then, because now it's selling for closer to 15, 20,000 yeah. euros. Do you think that's a fair price now? The Give market t- works, obviously. Sure. So, <laughs> so, so as, 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 as in the generics, you know, there the market works fantastically there, and I, now I want to be a prophet. You know, I think 
think we will run the public health systems in Europe, at least we run into a problem with the generics because they are so cheap in the moment yeah. that there is probably not an enough incentive anymore to produce them. Yeah, and you're not going to have enough competitors <laughs> exactly, to make the price down. Yeah. Exactly, to, to that the market really works. You know, so, so, so there is always these two sides. You know? but, but, but if I can get back to Somali, yeah. though, because if you remember, we started at 84000 but yeah. then a competitor came in with a dual therapy yeah. similar that then dropped the price by 50% yeah. in two and a half years. Fine. So I could say the market yeah. actually worked there, too. Yeah, the market worked. You know, the market worked. But still, you know, I think the public sector and the pharmaceutical sector, we have to have a fair discussion sure. what determines the price. You know, and we shouldn't be the public sector. We shouldn't be uh, so naive that uh, say, you know, innovation shouldn't cost anything. You know, that, that that's wrong, too. But, you know, it's not each and every price the uh, a company is asking for is also a fair price. Understood. So, so and this is what we have to understand and this is also a cultural question and that needs a new partnership you know I have the fantasy you know I don't know if you if you have to do that through regulation or through just fair play agreements we should know what a company puts into a product when it comes to R&D we don't know friends in industry always say, oh, if we are so transparent, you know, just look at our books, you know, you see what we spend on R&D. Yes, but we don't see it when it comes to an individual product. Yeah, the problem, and, and for yeah. example, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to, you know, maybe this is a loophole we can work on, you know. The problem, though, is if you look at how the industry is working now, contemporarily, what you have are spin-outs, like we're here in London, there's spin-outs from London that then get bought by another company exactly. in California, that then then, you know, then they take it to yeah. phase two and then that goes to Boston exactly. and then maybe some money comes in from the NIH to do fund secondary research and then oh now it's commercialized how do you split that pie that's a I mean it's a very tricky question it's not easy to answer sure. but I think we should work on that you know you've been nominated by your government yes after a exceptional period of public service for 15 years to be the regional director of the WHO for Europe yes what would you consider to be the key goals of your candidacy <laughs> Since I'm doing now uh, health po- policies for for such a long time, you know, WHO is a very very important uh, partner, and uh, the work of WHO has to be improved dramatically. And it already improved. You know, the WHO Euro, where I want to be the regional director, if the member states elect me, uh, has improved its works over the last 10 years tremendously. You know, as I said in my in the beginning of our, of our discussions here, you know, there's so much better evidence now. And it is there, and it's clear, and, 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 and we gain so much out of it. But still, it has to be relevant. And I think this multilateral organization, especially the UN organization, they have fantastic narratives, and people who work there believe in their narrative. And they think if they speak about something, it is already reality. And it is not. You know, sustainable development goals are important. I have this little sign <laughs> yeah, your here, there. Yes, my, my sustainable development goal, because I really identify myself with the sustainable development goals. But they have to be reality in the member states. See, and I have a record of transformative change, you know. We already talked about digital health. I did many, many things in pharmaceuticals. I did many things when it comes to uh, primary health care and, 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 and or, or target-based uh, uh, steering processes, etc., etc., new ways to how to budget things, etc., etc. So I think I have a, a long and good record uh, how to 
operationalize transformative change. And that sets me aside from, from the fantastic uh, other candidates coming from WHO. They never, never, never have worked with a legislator. They never, never have brought a paper or, or a, a governmental initiative to the Council of Ministers. And, and this, this kind of experience I can bring to the table. And when I speak to the ministers and people who are in charge of, of, of picking the, the next regional director, they agree with. They agree with. The WHO bubble is a good bubble. It's a fruitful bubble. But when, when there is a chance to change the leadership, the leadership should come from outside, as it was in the global sector with Dr. Tedros. Tedros was not coming from the, so from the UN organization. He, he was a politician. He came from outside. And in his one and a half years or two years now, he is the director general of WHO. He did really a wonderful job in making the, the, the world look different. Uh, at least the world of WHO look very much different. So let's say tomorrow... Yes. You are elected. Yes. What's the first item of business on your agenda when you sit behind the desk? I don't know. I, I have three, probably. I would definitely start working immediately on, on the one topic we already touched on, on my interoperable eco-space, you know, mm -hmm. of digital health, because otherwise we can forget all the other dreams. That would be one of the first things. And the, the WHO would have a lot of budget from the U.S., etc. You'd have more money to play yes, with. Yes, and I think Absolutely. the WHO is a competent authority to have some form of soft regulation on that. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's another topic we have to figure out, you know, what form. But, you know, this is the WHO has all the authority to do things like okay, that. So that's one. That's one. <laughs> the second thing is uh, we all also, also touched upon, uh, you know, in, in the European context, it's not only high income as it's also a low-income, middle-income uh, topic is, you know, this new partnership with pharmaceutical industry. You know, I think the, 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 the lack of leadership on the public side is evident. You know, I see it within the European Union. You know, the Commission is not exercising this kind of leadership it's because the member states own, uh, don't allow them to do so. And sure. the member states themselves are, cannot ex exercise this, uh, this coordinating leadership. The presidencies don't work that way, even if the Dutch and other presidencies did good work, but there's no sustain, sustainable coordination process. I think WHA can jump in and do this, and I would definitely do that. That's and two. No, that's three. I <laughs> said <laughs> digital health and, and the, the access to medicines, and my third topic would be really working tough on the curriculars of our health pro pro profession. Our healthcare professions have not uh, come to the 21st century. The, the education of healthcare professions is not in the 21st century. They are the WHO, and this is the added value of the work of WHO with all its co competent authorities, so to say, can bring at one table the presidents of the European medical universities and say, friends, we have a societal obligation and we have to change how we train our medical doctors, our nurses, our midwives, etc., etc., etc. And this is key. This is key. If you don't do that, forget about new forms of, of collaborative healthcare services, etc., etc., if it's not ingrained into the educational system of our professions. Clement Sauer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm.